And it's good to worship the Lord. So, so good. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I'm, I'm deeply thankful to be a part of a church that truly desires to, um, to walk in the Lord together. And uh, deeply thankful as well for the ways you encourage me even to uh, rest. And, um, you know, many of you know I've uh, been out the last two Sundays on vacation and I uh, was back in the office Monday and it was great to hit the ground running and we've been running ever since. And uh, it's, it's all been good because I'm thankful to come home to a church that loves us and a church that wants to live for the Lord. It is, is always a good thing. Um, the other thing I want to say just right up front, I want to make sure I don't forget, uh, I want to say thank you to uh, Warren Davey and, and Barry Cole for um, bringing the word to us the last couple of Sundays. Um, they did a, a fantastic job, and I'm thankful for their ministries. I'm thankful for uh, their gifts and for the fact that they're willing to um, lean in and share those with us. You know, it, it, Harvest has never been a Brian-centered kind of place, right? That it's uh, it, Ministry is something we all lean into and we all do together, and we're at our best when we all lean in, and it's such a good thing uh, when we do. I do want to mention as well, some of you see uh, these flowers, um, we had a great and, and beautiful service yesterday honoring uh, Sunita Wilson and uh, her life and honoring her Lord. Um, I want to say thank you to everyone who was involved with that, everyone who uh, helped out with um, everything from setup to cleanup and everything in between. Uh, it was deeply meaningful. Um, for those that are interested that may have missed it, we are checking to see if we can get that. It, it was live streamed. I, I believe it's probably accessible. Uh, we held the service at North Kinsey Christian, just, you know, a half mile uh, down the road. I got to get turned right here um, that way um, because our facility was too small. And um, so it may be on their webpage. We're looking into seeing, uh, can we upload that to our media channels as well, if you're interested in being a part of that sort of after the fact. Um, with that said, I want to jump back in to Daniel chapter 9. We've been for months, really, making our way through the book of Daniel, and uh, we actually spent a little time in Daniel 9 already, and I want to come back and see the entire chapter in its entirety, and to set it up, I want to ask you this question. Um, in fact, I put it in the newsletter this week. Are you guilty, like I am? of praying prayers that are too small? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious question to answer almost at some point. I mean, do you know how me-centric my prayer life tends to get, quite honestly? Uh, you know, I think about my needs. I think about my wants. I, forget, I confuse the two, right? And I get caught up in everything revolving around me and my family. And, and, and oftentimes... My prayer life sort of centrals that way. That's one of the great things about the prayer requests we gather on Sundays, being a part of the family of God, is that it gives us a chance to pray beyond ourselves and to pray more corporately, if you will. In fact, I'm just going to say this right up front today. We would love, if you would say, you know what, I would like, uh, I, I will take it seriously. I'm not a perfect prayer warrior. I'm not, I'm, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not saying I pray hours and hours at a time, but I would like to pray for the requests that come in on Sundays, that I will pray for those, I will take those seriously. Um, we'd love to add you to that prayer team. It's as simple as giving us your email address, telling us you want to be a part of that prayer team, and uh, we will get you set up where every, every Monday, every Tuesday, and then periodically as they come in, uh, you get 
uh, from our team uh, those prayer requests. We'd love to have you pray and be a part of that. But I know sometimes my prayers are small because I'm only thinking about myself. And sometimes my prayers are small because I'm forgetting about Jesus, if I'm honest. I'm just, I'm just sort of circumventing the fact that he is here and he is with me and he is in me. Sometimes my prayers are small because, because my thinking gets rather moment-focused, right? Particularly this one, and I think too short-term. Sometimes my prayers are small because I forget God's big picture, and God's mission, and I forget what it is God's up to and God wants to achieve. But I think after studying Daniel chapter 9, I'm pretty convicted that most of the time my prayers are small because I forget how great God really is. I forget how great His love is. I forget how great His goodness is. I forget how great his work in my life is. And so I fall back to a dependency on myself rather than a dependency on Christ. To show you that, we're going to be in Daniel 9. And you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you want. If you don't have a Bible, we keep Bibles around. There's some on the back table. There's some on the welcome table outside around over here. We give Bibles away for free. We think everybody should have one. We want you to have one of ours if you don't have a Bible. To set this up, we said last a uh, couple of times, we were in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, that when we're in a mess, we have to ask two really good questions, right? And, and it's actually fairly common once we hit the proverbial bottom to ask these questions. Question one, how did I get into this mess? Question two, how do I get out, right? But often we have to hit the proverbial bottom to be willing to ask either of those questions. Maybe better said, we should ask, number one, what did I do to get into this mess? Not just how did I get here, but what did I do to create this? And better said on how to get out of it, what do I need God to do that I cannot do to free me from this? You might remember in the book of Daniel, what we have is Daniel and his friends and many of the people of Judah had been the people of Jerusalem had been taken, right? They, they were captives of war. They were taken from their homeland in Judah, in Jerusalem, and they were taken to Babylon. And by the time we get to Daniel 9, they've been there for 60 some years. But back home, Jerusalem was leveled. The temple was destroyed. I watched the images coming out of Ukraine, and I realize our weapons are far worse these days, but the spirit of man has always been the same. It's easy to see in modern times, maybe picture a little better, how devastated they must have been. To have lost family members, to have lost home, to have lost the center of their worship. And so they literally took Daniel and some of his friends that are represented in the book of Daniel and many, many others, and they brought them to Babylon and they, they made them Babylonian, if you will. Right? They instructed them in the ways of Babylon. They made them learn all of the Babylonian religion. And yet somehow in all of that, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stayed faithful to God. But 
But if we're going to go at it the way we've sort of talked about, how did I get into this mess? What did I do to get into this mess? How do I get out of it? How do we get out of it? I think it's worth answering those questions. And we actually began to explore it a few weeks ago. How did I get into it? Well, there's a very general answer, a big picture, and there's a very specific answer. The big picture is that the people of God rejected their God. And we see this over and over and over in the life cycle of the people of Israel. It predates Daniel's time long before that they'd been through many cycles of rejecting God, of relying on themselves, of saying, no, God, thank you, but no, thank you, we're good. Like, we got this. Or they would turn to other gods and they would reject God. They would go with the gods of the people around them, the gods of the people they were battling against. And so it was really the pride of the people in rejecting God that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. It would seem that what led to the destruction of Jerusalem was losing the war, a war, to the Babylonians. But God had said centuries before that if you reject me, this is what's going to happen. And he said it more than once, more than twice, more than... It was a common refrain. But there's a specific picture in play, and it's not just the pride of the people, it's the pride of Judah and its kings, the pride of the kingdom and its kings, specifically King Hezekiah, acting like they didn't need God or didn't want God. And before we judge him too quickly, we're often guilty of the same, aren't we? Like believing in God, believing we need Jesus, but acting like we might not. So there's this great story over in 2 Kings 20. We actually went through it a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to read all of it now. But Hezekiah had invited uh, some leaders from Babylon into his palace to look over all the great stuff that he had. And he basically was making an alliance with the Babylonians against the Assyrians to say, we have this common enemy, right? The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we can do this together. But he was rejecting a spiritual solution, relying on God in favor of a political alliance. It's really nothing new under the sun. And Isaiah the prophet actually said to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, Hear the word of the Lord, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon, and nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What happens in the book of Daniel is just the fulfillment of what Isaiah had said. And it all related to pride. The pride of the king and the pride of the people. In fact, you might take note, right, that even when the temple was built and it was dedicated... You get, you get these words. God saying, if you turn away, this would be in 2 Chronicles 7, if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands that I have given you, and you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, 
which I have given them, and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name, and I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples, and this temple will become a heap of rubble. And all who pass by will be appalled, and they will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them up out of Egypt, and they have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving him them. That's why he brought all this disaster on them. So that, that's the big picture of how do we get into this. And you might remember God actually in that same Second Chronicles 7 chapter had given them the answer for how they get out of it. It's a very familiar prayer. We often talk about the need to pray that in the United States, but the prayer was given to the people of Israel, the people of Judah. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will hear their, heal their land. And it goes on to say, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. That provides good background. I know it's a lot, but it provides good background to understanding the book of Daniel. Because do you remember in Daniel chapter 6, right, Lion's Den story? The king was a guy named, anybody remember? It was King Darius at that point. Not, not, not the Babylonians. They'd been over it. The Babylonians had fallen at that point. But there's the whole thing where the advisors go against Daniel and they say, look, king, we need to mess you a decree that if anybody prays to anyone except you, right, they'll be thrown in the lion's den. And it says Daniel went back to his place with his window open and he got down on his knees and he prayed three times a day just like he had done before. It turns out all along, Daniel knew. Daniel had always been praying for the restoration of Jerusalem. He'd always been praying a prayer that goes something like, we are your people, we are called by your name, we humble ourselves, we are seeking you, we're not seeking ourselves, we're praying for forgiveness. This was at the heart of who Daniel was and how Daniel often prayed. So, let's read Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, same king that Daniel 6 is about, and I'm just making note here that Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 happen sort of out of sequence. They, they sort of fit back in with Daniel 1 and 6 because they take place in different times and they're not chronological. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom... Right? But, but he was a, he's a Mede. This is the beginning of the reign of the Medes and the Persians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, he's referring here specifically to Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And so I turned to the Lord God, and I pleaded with him in prayer and in petition and in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. These were signs of repentance. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed. And here's the prayer. Lord, a great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, and we have done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled, and we have turned away from your commands and laws. And we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes, 
to our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. Now just catch here, he's telling us who God is. Even more so, he's telling us what God is like. You are righteous, but to this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all, in all countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. Just pause there for just a second. You notice how he's saying we? Yet Daniel was not the king who did this, but Daniel is a descendant of the king who did this. Daniel is, as a prophet, speaking to God on behalf of all the people, but he is including himself in this. I don't know about you, but I, I picture Daniel's a pretty righteous guy. But he's got a handle on the fact that he's sinful too. Verse 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. And even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or we have not kept the laws he's, he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law, turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. And you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. And under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. And just as written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring this disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. That's saying he is right in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God... <laughs> who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. That's a pretty good apology, by the way. If you've ever got to apologize to someone, you know that quick little thing we do where you go, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, something tells me, well, I'm sorry. Isn't quite the same as you're right. I'm wrong. We're wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquity of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary and give ear, our God, and hear. And open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear. Lord, act. For your sake. 
My God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Can you see where Daniel is speaking right in line with what it said in Isaiah, what it said in 2 Chronicles, even going back to what it said that we didn't dig into back in the book of Deuteronomy. He is right in line with what God had said in the scriptures. And he is praying that God would restore Jerusalem, that he would restore Judah, that he would restore the temple even, the sacrifices that would happen there. In the end, prayer points me to a lot of things. Prayer points me to humility. Prayer points me to dependence. Prayer points me to my need for mercy. Prayer shows me the heart of God. The heart of God that we pray to is merciful and gracious. He is both powerful, righteous, and gentle. If you think about it, you know, why can we even pray at all? Is a pretty deep thing to think about. And the amazing thing about God is that he even hears our prayers. Not just that he hears them in the sense of like they're going on in the background and he's like busy cooking, you know. But that he turns and listens to us is all its own greatness. And so the one thing I want to say to us today, really the singular point this message is about, the one thing this message is about is this, that my prayers are often too small because I forget both the greatness of God and the greatness of his grace. It is so easy for me to forget how great God really is. And it is easy for me to fall into the trap of thinking, well, my sin isn't that bad. And therefore, his grace really isn't that big of a deal. And yet, my sin is worse than I know, and his grace is greater than I understand. After all, the solution for that grace took a cross that I'll never be able to fully wrap my brain around. It's part of what we celebrate with Good Friday and Easter. I read in one commentary this week that the answer is that we should pray because of God's grace, that the solution to our sin is not to brush it under the carpet and pretend that it doesn't exist. And there are plenty of people who want to do that in our contemporary context, people who don't even want to mention the word sin. But that was not Daniel's way that the answer to our sin is to remember God's grace and to confess it before him, throwing ourselves on his sovereign mercy, that I am indeed a filthy sinner quite unfit for God's use. And I think Daniel would say, so are you. And yet we throw ourselves at the mercy of God and the grace of God, and he does forgive us, and he does use us, and all of that affirms his name and his greatness. Now, be clear. My prayers are not the only things that are too small sometimes. When I forget the greatness of God, when I forget the greatness of his grace, my love is too small. My heart is too small. My gratitude is too small. My contentment is too small. My servanthood is too small. We could go on and on and on with how forgetting the greatness of God shrinks who we're really supposed to be. Even my treatment of others is often too small when I forget God 
and I forget his grace. A friend of mine posted on social media a little while ago. He said, if you are deeply aware of your standing before God, three things should flow out of you quickly and regularly. If you understand your standing before God, you should have a gracious word. You should have a gracious response. And there should be room for gracious disagreement. All this goes along with what Jesus prayed. You remember Jesus prayed things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? You know, you know that prayer, right? Forgive us our sins, our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice that Jesus tied a treatment of others, a forgiveness that I share to our forgiveness from God. And when we understand the heart of God right, I not only want to pray more prayers, I want to pray better prayers. So how does prayer stretch my faith and remind me of God's greatness exactly? I want to be practical. I want to run back through it one more time. I had four ways that prayer stretches my faith and reminds me of God's greatness. Number one, prayer gives me a better understanding of God's work through the Bible, through my Bible. That might seem like a little odd phrasing, but what I mean is that prayer and my Bible reading go hand in hand. That prayer gives me a better understanding of Scripture, and Scripture gives me a better understanding of prayer. And I would note in my own life, and it's probably true in yours, that when I neglect one, I tend to neglect the other. Would you say that's true? So prayer gives me a better experience, not just a better understanding of God's work through the Bible. Because when I read the Bible and God convicts me and I pray about that, I'm now experiencing God. But note at the beginning of the chapter, he made reference, verse 2, to understanding from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And this is interesting to me because Jeremiah had not been around that long. He's recognizing that Jeremiah the prophet is authoritative scripture, just like Deuteronomy, just like Second Chronicles. He's recognizing how significant that is. But the prophecy there in Jeremiah 25, in Jeremiah 29, in fact, the prophecy is included in one of our favorite verses in all the Bible. You know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The context of that is verse 10 that says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Daniel knew that. And Daniel was reading his Bible, his scripture. And he was saying, hey, God said it'd be 70 years. It's been. It's been 66 years. We know that because the, we, we have a rough estimate, good estimate, of when he was taken into exile, and he gave us that back in Daniel 1. We have a good, good idea that this happened in the, <clears throat> as it said here, the first year of King Darius. So we can date these things. It's been 66 years. He's thinking, in four years, God's going to take us back home. God, forgive. God, do it. God, for your glory, for your name, do it. 
Sometimes when I preach, you probably think I get a little excited. And sometimes I get even more excited. In fact, Marcy and Nick will sometimes say, you were a little more like, you know, on it today. Or, or like you had that little smirk in your eye. Or, or there was a little more oomph in your... It's God works through his word. And this powerful thing happens when we talk with God about it when he's working. Does this, does this make sense? It's exciting to see God work, number two. Prayer gives me a better understanding of my sin. I mean, it seems very obvious to me that this entire chapter is about confessing sin and repenting of sin. But there are a lot of words used here. I'm not going to read the entire thing for us again. We just read it. But I want you to note that not only does he describe God in a lot of different ways, he describes sin in a lot of different ways. Here are the phrases he uses. Note the following. He says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We've rebelled, we have turned away, we have not listened, we, we had disloyalty, we've public shame, again, sinned, rebelled, not obeyed, broken your law, turned away, refusing to obey, sinned, iniquities, not obeyed, sinned, and acted wickedly. Twenty-some times as he goes through this, Daniel uses either the word we or our or us. He is owning the fact that they have done wrong. He is owning the ways they have done wrong. And I think it's good. I made, I made a, you know, a comment a while ago about how good apologies will involve not just an I'm sorry, but we are wrong. They didn't just apologize to God here. He was confessing, he was repenting, and he was pleading for forgiveness. And there's actually some technical distinction, right, between those things. Confessing is agreeing with God. When I confess to God, my people were called by my name, right, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. And when we confess, we're saying, God, I agree with you, I have done wrong. When we repent, we are turning, going towards my sin going towards God. How many, how many, <laughs> what do you call it when we turn back? Because I know in my life, I have said, I'm going towards my sin. I'm going to turn. I'm going to repent. I'm going to go towards God. You know how often we turn back around again? I don't know what that's called. It's called sin, <laughs> temptation, you know, a variety of other things. But repentance is turning from myself and my sin to God and his ways. And forgiveness is asking God to cancel the debt that is owed to him for the wrong that was done. I'll come back to this thought. Number three. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Prayer gives me a better understanding of what God is like. Not, only just, not just a better understanding of my Bible and a better understanding of my sin, but a better understanding of what God is like. Again, I'm not going to read it all to us again, but I went back through and I made note of all the descriptions of God. And this is what it says, right? In verse 3, it says, God is my Lord. That is a reminder that God is sovereign over everything. 
and actually when it uses the name of God, and we actually get the name of God, the YHWH, called sometimes the tetragrammaton or the, the letters that represent, we, we will pronounce them Yahweh, Yahweh, that that is that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D that shows up in our Bibles. And that name for God, which is God's name, that was given to Moses all those years and years and years and decades, centuries ago, shows up in the book of Daniel. But we get late into the book of Daniel before it shows up. But it references the fact that God is, you could research this, his name represents that he is the very breath of life. He describes God in verse 4 as great, as awesome. He says in verse 4 that he keeps his covenant, that is, he is faithful, that it is a covenant of love, that means God is loving, that God is righteous, he says multiple times, God is merciful, he says multiple times, he, is, he references that God is forgiving and he asks for forgiveness over and over and over. Verse 14, he seems to refer to God as a, he doesn't use this exact word, but the best I could think of is a disciplining father, as one who allows consequences or sometimes gives consequences to turn us around. Verse 15, God is a deliverer. Verse 16, he is someone who experiences anger and wrath. I think when we go through anger and wrath, we see it through sin-tainted eyes, and we have a tendency to think that all anger and all wrath are therefore wrong. I want to be cautious about labeling any of my own anger as righteous anger, but there are circumstances in life where that can happen, right? And we have to be willing to deal with those things, but I note for you, God does. God is the owner of Judah, the owner of Jerusalem, the owner of the temple, the one for whom it was all built, verse 16. God is a listener, verse 17. And verse 19 suggests that God is a restorer. That when I pray, I get an understanding, especially when I read it with my Bible, of how powerful and how good God really is. And prayer gives me a better understanding of Jesus' grace. How great God is, how great my sin is, how great his word is, but lastly, how great his grace really is. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a quick little reading of the rest of the chapter. And I just want you to note for you, we did an entire sermon on what I'm going to read here a few weeks ago, and I am not going to be able to go through all of it. It's just, it's just we don't have time. Well, we could take time, but you don't want me to take time because you'll be here until, I don't know, like three weeks from now. So he says, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, again, notice how he puts himself here, and the sin of my people Israel, and I was making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. So he is speaking of Jerusalem generally, and the temple and the temple mount specifically. While I was making my request to the Lord for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the angel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, referenced earlier in Daniel, uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel, uh, back there. He came to me in swift flight. This is interesting. About the time of the evening sacrifice. 
except the temple was destroyed and there are no sacrifices happening in Jerusalem in the temple because it's all been wiped out. But uh, Daniel's observing the sacrifice in his mind, which, by the way, you remember, was the sacrifice for sins, among other things. And about the time of the sacrifice, he said, Daniel, I now have come to give you insight and understanding. And as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you were highly esteemed. Which, by the way, is the same thing that Gabriel says in hundreds of years to a young girl named Mary. And we talk about it at Christmas time. You are highly graced. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Not 70, but 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, and seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens, and then there will be 62 sevens. That, that if you're doing math, is 69 sevens. And it will be rebuilt, Jerusalem, with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end will come like a flood. And war will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. And he will confirm a covenant with many for one one seven, and in the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the decree that is poured out on him. And we read that the very first time, and it was like, what? And sometimes you read it for like the 70th time to use his number, and you're still like, what? But hear me out. I gave all of this back a few weeks ago. This is all about the coming of Jesus. And we can debate all day long whether it's about the first coming of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus or whether it's about both. And good scholars come out on all sides of whether it's about both, whether it's about one, whether it's about the other. My personal belief is he's giving us the time of the initial coming, right? The birth of Jesus Christ and the fact that the anointed one dies, like, this is fabulous prophecy. But even more so, God is saying to Daniel, Daniel, you're thinking about Jerusalem and, and, and being God's people. You're thinking about the temple and the place where I dwell. If you think that's big, wait till you hear what I really have planned. In fact, uh, a commentator I, I, I read said this. Uh, this was just fabulous, I thought. He said, if this is the correct interpretation, it's not too difficult to see what it is or what it was that heaven was so anxious to communicate to Daniel, his representative on earth. It was right that he should long to see the people delivered from captivity. It was right that he should long to see Jerusalem rebuilt and the temple worship reinstituted. And yet the Lord wanted Daniel to see beyond these things to what they foreshadowed. However painful that might be, that God's ultimate purpose was not a temple made with hands and a holy place entered but once each year, that his son was the place in which men were to approach God and his sacrifice was the one which would bring forgiveness. And then if men still clung to the shadows and symbols of the old order, rejecting what they symbolize, there would only be one terrible prospect, that that would be the judgment and destruction of the most terrible kind. That's what's outlined here. 
that the anointed one, the ruler, would be rejected, even though he would be the answer to the temple. He would be the answer to the people of God. He would be the answer to their sins. That he is grace. And there's something phenomenal about not only the greatness of God, but the greatness of his grace in Jesus Christ. And that's what I forget, which has me going on with my life as though I don't sin, which has me going on with my life playing God, not only in my life, but in other people's lives. And it's that forgetfulness that I think is often behind why my heart is too small again. Not only are my prayers too small, my love is too small, my kindness is too small, my contentment is too small, my gratitude. Does this make sense? This is deep stuff in God's word, but it's real, and we wrestle with this. So here's how I want to conclude today. I always end with two prayers, a prayer of salvation and a prayer of application. But can we do three prayers today? Why not? I know. Like change in church, just radical. We're going to pray three prayers. Yeah. Well, careful what you say yes to, because the first prayer is what you're going to pray. So we're going to pray our prayer of salvation. We're going to pray our prayer of application as number two and number three, if you're just keeping track. But the first prayer we're going to pray, I just want to prompt you in some prayers. Is that okay? So what I want to ask you to do is I want you to bow your heads, and I want you to think about sin as my and we, not just they and those people. And so I want you to pause for a moment and confess and repent of your pride before God. I want you to confess and repent of the ways you rely on yourself instead of on God. you to confess and repent of the ways you try to play God or replace God.
want you to ask God for forgiveness. If you need salvation today, maybe you've heard the story for the very first time or maybe you've understood for the first time that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again and that all of it happened according to the plan of God. Maybe you'd pray just like this with me. For the very first time, you'd say, Dear Jesus, I admit and confess that I am so wrong, that I fall short, and I don't deserve you but I turn to you and I ask for you to forgive me and remove all of my guilt and all of my shame. And I ask you, Jesus, to be my God. I put my faith in you. I ask you to, <laughs> to be my Lord, to take over my life. May every breath I breathe be a breath from you, God, about you, for you. In Jesus' name. Whether you're here in the room or you're online, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, man, we'd love to know that. It's such a big deal. We want to help you understand all this means. We want, to, we want to walk with you. We want to give you a Bible. We want to talk about next steps. We want to help you know you're loved. That's what church is all about. The family of God spurring one another on in these ways. Would you let us know? You can tell me on a communication card. You can tell me on a digital communication card online. It can be found in the links, uh, however you're watching, or on our website. You can... Tell me by emailing me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. One last prayer. A third prayer. A prayer of application. Just to sum up all we have prayed. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've received salvation already, would you echo this prayer with me? Dear Jesus, I confess my sin. No defensiveness. Just an honest admission that I am not like you. And I ask, me to show, ask you to show me your greatness and your grace. And help me to pray without ceasing with your greatness and grace in mind. Lord, forgive us your people, for the ways we ignore you. Lord, we pray that you would work mightily in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you guys. God's word is so good, and I am so thankful he is at work. If I can serve you in some way, I'll be available after service, but let's stand as we... Sing and worship the Lord again.